0: This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message.
1: Uh, Would would you turn with me to Matthew 17 this morning for the Scripture reading? uh, Chapter 17 of Matthew. We'll be in verses uh, 22 through 27. So there at the end of the chapter, Matthew 17. And would you stand when you find it? <clears throat> Verse 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers?' And Peter said to him, From strangers, and Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we, often, l- lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Let's pray.
0: <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you this morning. Lord, for gathering us here. Thank you for giving us uh, another uh, time together for worship, prayer, study. And Lord, we look to you. Lord, we want uh, our focus to be on you. We want our hearts to be set on you, our minds set on you. Lord, uh, please enable us. Focus in on Your Word and the proclamation of Your Word, the truth of Your Word, so that we may grow and increase in our knowledge of You and our love for You and our understanding of Your will, so that we may grow in how all that is played out in our lives. Use us here this morning, this day, To bring glory and honor to your name, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. There's one sense in which this is going to blend really well with the Sunday school lesson if you were in Sunday school this morning, and that's uh, not really intentional. Of course, I didn't try to avoid it either, but but uh, the the topic we were talking about in Sunday school uh, applies here, and that's just because that's what this passage deals with. And and uh, I think, in, in looking at these verses, in fact, there there are some things I'm going to try to tie together as we go, try to point out some running, at least a couple of running themes here. Um, but verses 22 and 23 and then verses 24 through 27 uh at first glance uh may appear to be quite different and uh like they at least at least for the purpose of a sermon like they don't go together but i but i think again there's a, a common uh theme here and uh and i I've, I've decided to just phrase it this way uh, that is um spent for the sake of others and of course the two um, ways we're going to see that played out in these passages is first in in uh, the life of the Lord. He spent his life. In fact, he literally came, lived, suffered, and died, and even rose again for our sake. Um, and as we often say, uh, his course, of course his ultimate goal was to glorify the Father, right? So he has as his ultimate goal the glory of God. And then secondary to that is you and I, to benefit us, our well-being. And so it should be the case with us that in all we do, we have as our ultimate purpose the glory of God. And then second to that, um, the well-being of our fellow man, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And those two things are intertwined, so they're not, they're not, don't think of them as completely separate. In other words, I would, I would illustrate that this way. You can't glorify God if you don't live for the well-being of other people. And vice versa, it would be uh, uh, unthinkable, uh, just, just again, because the two are intertwined, it would be unthinkable to glorify God without benefiting other people. If you, if you give your life over to the glory of God, other people around you are going to benefit from that. That's just going to be a a necessary byproduct. So I think that's the theme, uh, at least one, that binds these passages together. In verses 22 and 23, we see this in the life of Jesus. And in verses 24 through 27, we have Jesus' instruction for us to live in that manner. To be spent for the sake of others. And I think that ought to be our goal. We had a... uh, pastor years ago, Dan Sheila will remember this, he had a saying um, to the congregation. He would say, spend me, but spend me wisely. <laughs> and and there is, there's wisdom in that for all of us, for every Christian, not just pastors. I can identify with that as a pastor, but that's, uh, that's something that every Christian ought to be seeking is to be spent wisely. And we could say the same thing to uh, one another. Just again, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, spend me—you know, use me. God, God has put us here for a means to help and grow each other. So, by all means, spend me, but spend me wisely. And of course, of course, what he meant by that—that that pastor meant by that—was uh, don't call me with little frivolous things you know, that that you can take care of on your own. Um, but but if you need me, you know, call me. Just spend me wisely. Every Christian can say that we want to be spent for the benefit of others, and that would be a wise use of our lives. So first we go um, to uh, Jesus in verse twenty-two. And let me just say this um, going in again: if you were in Sunday school, this is going to be this first part is going to be a little bit of a recap. But the the Christian life is about relationship. There is no um, Again, to quote my old pastor, "No, no lone rangers in the church." It may sound like a, it may be a silly way of putting it, but uh, but it makes good sense, especially for us when our mindset is uh, individualism. That's the way we're we're taught and trained in this society. So we have, as as Christians, we have to reject that. It's all about relationships. Just here's just a few ways that that plays out. First of all. The Christian life is rooted in relationship. Rooted in the divine relationship that exists eternally in the Holy Trinity. The Godhead. Our God is relational. And that's that's not just because He He deals with us and He deals with His creation as a whole, although He does do that. But he was relational before there ever was a creation. For all eternity, this relationship or these relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed. God is relational. So, so Christianity is rooted in relationship in that sense. We are created by a relational God who has existed eternally in the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, uh, uh, the Father is, is, relates to and is uh, in relationship with the Son and the Spirit, and the Son is in relationship with the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is in relationship with the Father and the Son. It was so in the past. For all eternity it is now, and it will always be that way. Yes, God is one, but in the Godhead, God exists in three persons: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Christian life originated in relationship. Now, what I mean by this is uh, well, let me just do it by example, Ephesians one four, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians one four says, God chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. And without blame before Him, in love. So, again, way before there was creation, way before we were on the scene as individuals, God chose us. So, Christianity originated in relationship. God relating to us, choosing us, predestining us, which it also says in Ephesians one verse five or verses four and five, in love he predestined us. That's the relationship. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So before creation God chose us and he in love he predestined us predetermined what? He predestined us for adoption as sons. So, He decided before He ever created to adopt us as sons through Jesus Christ. So, you have that aspect, God in us. God chose us. He predestined us in love to adopt us as sons. And then also, us in Christ. Christian life originated in relationship, us in Christ. So those same verses, Ephesians one four, just as He chose us in Him. That Him right there is, is Christ, is Jesus. God chose us. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then again, uh, verse six, or I'm sorry, verse five, four and five. In love He predestined us, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So, there's a relationship with God and us, and there's a relationship with us in Christ before we even existed. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> because God predetermined it. He planned it before the foundation of the world. So, Christianity originated in relationship. God and us. Us in Christ. Thirdly, the Christian life is sustained in relationship. We exist as Christians in Christ. In Christ. So, not only were we chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ, we now live as Christians in Christ. In fact, if you, if you read uh, Ephesians, uh, I, I haven't counted, but that phrase is just used numerous times. And, it, and it's sometimes worded differently, but either in Christ or in Him or something like that. And it's just used repeatedly repeatedly. There is no Christianity apart from Christ. There's no salvation. There's no faith. There's no sanctification. There's no hope. And again, to just to say it in short, no Christianity apart from Christ. The Christian life is sustained in relationship. That is our relationship with Christ, in Christ rather. Fourth, the Christian life is expressed in relationship. Now. Um, we're going to come back to this in a moment, and that's also what we were talking about in, in Sunday school this morning. Um, Christian life is expressed in relationship, so vertical and horizontal. That's, that's how the Christian life manifests. Just yesterday, uh, no, not yesterday, Friday, just fr- Friday, somebody said to me, they were talking about a, uh, a family member that they weren't sure, you know, not sure if they're Christian or not. And uh, they were talking about how to how to how to help them, how to deal with them. And uh, this this person said, "Too bad God didn't just, you know, put a mark over their head so we'd know if they were saved or not." And I said, "Well, uh, He pretty much did. If if the evidence is there, faith without works is dead. So if the evidence is there, then they're saved." If the evidence is not there, then they're not saved. I mean, that's at least insofar as we can tell. We, we can't see the heart, but God does mark Christians. In fact, Jesus said, they'll know, that is, the world will know you're my disciples because you love one another. Francis Schaeffer called that the mark of the Christian. Christians are marked. Christian life is expressed in relationship. Vertical, that is our relationship with God. And then horizontal, our relationship with um, our fellow man. Let's say it that way because we, we would include lost people and saved people. How we relate to lost people and how and how we relate to saved individuals. Um, our our Christian, Christianity is expressed in those relationships. Um, and then the last one here, the Christian life is consummated in relationship. What what are we all looking forward to? The marriage supper of the lamb, right? The resurrection, the marriage supper of the lamb and then to enter uh there to enter and be in the presence of Christ forever and ever, the joining of Christ and the church when we shall be united to the Lord in glory forever. Then then our salvation shall be complete. And our relationship with God perfected. Why? Because the hindrance of of our sin will be removed from our experience, in presence and in practice. No more, no more sin. So, in in that relationship, that eternal relationship, where we enter the the joy and the presence of the Lord forever, uh, the Christian life is consummated. It's brought to. Uh, fulfillment, completion. In fact, let me, let me just go to a couple of passages on that before I leave that point. In Revelation uh, 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is mentioned. <clears throat> In Revelation 19, verse 7: Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. That's the church. His wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. See, the church is marked, right? Believers are marked. It's been granted to believers, to the church, to the bride of Christ, to be arrayed in fine linen, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the church. In verse, um, Righteous Acts of the Saints. In verse 9, Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And then, if you look over to, uh, if, if you're with me there, look over to chapter 21, and verse 2. Then I, John, Revelation 21, 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men." Now, here's here's the, the the final and eternal relationship that I'm referring to. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my Son. Christianity is consummated in relationship. That's where it comes to its completion, where we are with God forever in eternity, married to Christ in the fullness of the relationship that he's called us to. Um, well, I want to back up for just a moment, because I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the, the last point I mentioned before that was Christianity is expressed in relationships. Now, that's where we're going to be at today. Uh, specifically, um, the horizontal relationship. Christian, Christianity is expressed in relationship. Um, that's, that's, that's our focus. And I want to uh, keep in mind here, let me go I'm back in Matthew 17. Um, Chapter 16, verse 24. Use this as kind of the backdrop here. If anyone desires to come after me, this is Jesus speaking in 1624. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross As we talk about being spent for the sake of others, especially verse 24. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow, follow me. Now, that's, that's, again, kind of the, the, the backdrop here. In fact, uh, just, uh, uh, just prior to that, 1621, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. Now, we get over to our text this morning, 1722, and he's talking about that again. This is where his, his, his teaching is being focused now, because they're drawing near to this time. His, his uh, final days before he goes to the cross. So in verse 22, he, uh, he brings it up again. While they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day, he will be raised up. And they, that is his disciples, they were exceedingly uh, sorrowful. Alright, so here's, here's main point number one, I guess you could say here. Verses 22 and 23. The sacrificial life and death of Jesus. Now, so in these verses, we're talking about Jesus himself as our ultimate example being spent For the sake of others. He goes to the cross. And he goes willingly. In his omniscience he knows. We see that from uh, what we read in 1621. We see that from verse 22 here. In his omniscience he knows what lies ahead. And he's not backing away from this. Why is that? Why would he not avoid dying? As a matter of fact. This is going to be another important word for today. Uh, This word stumble. Um, If you go back again to to chapter 16, verse 22, this is Peter's response to Jesus talking about the cross. About having to suffer many things uh, from the elders and chief priests. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now that's that sounds like a goodwill effort on Peter's part. He wants to uh, protect the Lord from uh, any kind of injury and uh, being humiliated. And and besides, Peter's got something else in mind. He's something that he's looking forward to that he can't. This idea of Jesus suffering and dying doesn't fit into the kingdom that Peter has in mind. And so he essentially rebukes the Lord for saying that he must go and suffer. And die. And here's Jesus' response, sixteen twenty three. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offence to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now the word that I'm saying is going to be important for us today is that word offense stumbling block. It's the idea of, of causing someone to sin, causing someone to fall, to stumble. And Matthew uses it repeatedly here, Uh, there, and and then in in verse uh, chapter 17, rather, as I'll try to point out as we go through here. Jesus knows where he's headed, and he's set. He's set on the course. His face set like a like a flint, headed for the cross. And any other notion is actually an offense to Christ. That's what he's saying to Peter. Peter, you're an offense to me. Why? Because you're mindful of the things of men rather than the things of God. What Jesus is saying, this, this must be done. This is God's will. There's, there's reason for this. There's purpose behind it. In fact... In 1621, he uses the word must. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must go and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priest. And Peter is trying to steer him off course. That's a stumbling block that's causing someone to sin that's being an offense the word is uh and it's used in various forms uh here some uh verb form some noun but it's it's it, the root of it is where we get our word scandal scandal stumbling block offense this is why jesus came to suffer and die. He came and, and be raised again. He came to fulfill God's plan of redemption. Any, anything other than that is a scandal. Scandalous idea. He's determined to fulfill God's perfect plan. In Luke, he even uh, underscores the importance of what he's saying here by emphatically uh Calling the disciples' attention by the use of the word "you." That's uh, let me flip over there, real quick. Luke nine forty four. It's in other words, it's just it's important. Luke nine forty four. Jesus says, "Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men." In the Greek, there there's a heavy emphasis on you, you, you. Let these words. You let these words sink down into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed to the hands of men. This, as he said in 1621, Matthew 1621, this must be. He is laying down his life for his friends. Does this is something for us uh, has application for us uh, as hopefully we'll see in a moment. Um, by the way, does does suffering hinder God's work? That that seems to be Peter's mindset here. You you can't suffer, Lord. You can't be turned over in submission to the will of the elders and the chief priest. That wouldn't be befitting the Son of God, the Christ, the King. Well, not only does suffering not hinder God's will, but it it fulfills it in this case and in other cases as well. This is God's means of being glorified and of glorifying His Son. Jesus must suffer or else there's no salvation for you and me. He's laying His life down for His sheep. Now, back to Matthew 17, verse 22 again. The Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Now, that word there means, some of your translations will say delivered. That's, that's uh, what the word means there. The Son of Man is about to be delivered or delivered up or delivered over into the hands of men. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. Well, interestingly, the King James here uh, translates it, betrayed. Now, that's not incorrect, because what's, what is going to happen? Judas is going to betray Christ, right? However, um, not so sure that's what Jesus has in mind, although that's certainly part of it. In other words, there are several ways he's being delivered here. First of all, as I just mentioned, he is being delivered by Judas. Judas is going to deliver Jesus over to the Jews. He betrays him. But he's also then delivered by the Jews to the Gentiles, right? They take Jesus, uh, Matthew 27, 1 and 2, uh, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So he's delivered by Judas to the Jews. Then he's delivered by the Jews to the Gentiles. And then he's delivered by Pilate to the will of, the angry, of an angry mob. Luke 23, 25. Pilate, that, uh, he, that is Pilate, released to them. Uh, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder, uh, he re- and he released to them the one they requested, that is, he set free uh, Barabbas, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered, and that's the same word used here in uh, Matthew 17, 22, betrayed or delivered, Pilate, while it delivered Jesus to their will, that is to the will of the people. But then fourthly, and this is the one that I, I think may um, be the main thing that Jesus has in mind here in this word delivered. Not so not so much the betrayal of, of Judas, although that is the means that is how it's going to play out. Judas delivering to the Jews, the Jews delivering to the Gentiles, that is to Pilate, and then Pilate delivering Jesus over to the will of the people. But all of that can be summed up this way. He's delivered up or over by God. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered by God into the hands of Of men, so his 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 being delivered up to suffer and die is God's plan. Acts two twenty three. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. It was planned by God. That is, His, his being delivered up it was planned by God, perpetrated by men, and pursued by Jesus. Jesus' face was set like a flint. His face was set to go to Jerusalem. He, he wasn't going to be turned aside. He was going to fulfill God's plan. He's saying this must be. It must be for our salvation. His life is spent. Literally. To, I mean, he's, He dies for us. Secondly, the sacrificial life of the believer. And we just talked about uh, Christ. His sacrificial life, Death. In our behalf, His suffering, His life was spent for us. Well, what, is, what, what does that mean for us? Um, what does it mean to take up your cross? We, we saw earlier, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, I've, I've, I've gone before you in this way. I've, I've set an example for you. Now, now, you must do the same thing. You, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. So, does that mean all of us are going to be delivered over to the Jews, and to Pilate, and to the angry mob. Well, you know what? Sometimes it, it does mean that the Christian will go to their death for their witness for Christ. Uh, the reason I, I... Y'all heard me tell a little story about Polycarp. Second, uh, first and second century uh, Christian. He lived into the uh, second century. Um, was a disciple of John, the Apostle John. And he was martyred for his witness uh, there's that article that I suggested earlier uh, was written by a professor at a New Orleans Theological Seminary, and uh, and it's that's what it's about, centered around uh, Polycarp's martyrdom. And there have been many, many Christians down through the years give their life for Christ. But there's another way of looking at it too, and I would say this this is uh, applicable to every Christian. Every Christian won't go. Uh, to the death chamber for Christ, literally. Some do, some don't. Most of us don't. But there's another way of taking up your cross. Now, this this is an interesting story and almost almost comical in a way. These next few verses, 24 through 27. But I think it's making a, a profound point here. Verse 24, When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax, that is the, the uh, didrachma, uh, literally, um Drachma was about a day's wage at this time, and so de drachma just means two, two drachma. So you're talking roughly two days' wages. Uh, that was the uh, uh, that was the amount of the temple tax, half half a shekel. The the money went to uh, pay for the expenses of the temple. It's uh, two two drachma or half a shekel, same thing. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax, that is the the drachma? And he said, Yes. Interestingly, Peter didn't even have to go ask the Lord, Lord, do you pay the temple tax? He already knew, which probably means he had just seen Jesus pay it in the past. So Peter just responds, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying. That is, Peter didn't, didn't even have to say what just happened. Jesus knew. And Jesus starts the conversation. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? And that's an interesting uh, rhetorical question there in the, in the form of a, of a, of a parable. Who do, who do kings collect taxes from? Their sons or strangers? Peter said to him, strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, I, the way I had taken this for a long time until I got to looking at this word strangers, and the way I had taken this for a long time was uh, what he's saying is, who do kings collect taxes from? Um, citizens or Foreigners. That's not a, not a correct interpretation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about family members. He says sons. Family members are non-family members. So in other words, who do, who do kings collect taxes from? Customs or taxes? Customs is, is taxes on, the word here means taxes on goods. And, uh, the word translated taxes there is taxes on individuals, people. Who do do kings collect those from? Their their own family, their own household, or strangers? Well, they're they're usually trying to support their own household. It's the reason people would pay the taxes, so that the kings could uh, uh, live in the kind of luxury they lived in, right? They didn't charge their own household. They charged strangers. Now, why does Jesus ask that question when we're talking about the temple tax? Well, because he's, he's putting it in the context of the kingdom of God and the rule of God. Who's, who's, who does the temple belong to? It's the temple of God, right? So it's his. It belongs to Jesus. So he's just showing the irony of, of him paying taxes to support the temple. Kings don't, don't tax their own family. I shouldn't be paying Peter because I'm the king. You shouldn't be paying Peter because you're, you're one of the sons of the kingdom. Kings don't charge their own family. They charge strangers. And Peter answers that way and answers correctly. Peter says, they from strangers, verse 26, they collect them from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. You see what he's saying? Then we're free from being taxed. The temple's mine. And you're a son. There's no need for us to pay taxes. Well, wait a minute, maybe there is. If, if, your, if your life is not just all about you and your liberty, your freedom, if your life is about being spent for the well-being of others and not causing others to sin, then there may be a reason. Verse 27, there is. Nevertheless, Jesus says, lest we offend them, and there's that word again, scandal, Scandalize. lest we offend them. Go to the sea. Now, here's why I said it's kind of comical. Here, Je- Jesus does a miracle here to provide the tax money, and it's just kind of a funny way that he does it. Um, certainly, exhibiting again his his power and authority, but also, you know, maybe just showing with this type of miracle how easy it is for him to get what he needs. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? So he says, go to the sea, cast in a hook. The only time a hook is mentioned, by the way, usually they're fishing with nets. He says, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Boy, don't you wish you could pay your taxes that way? (laughs) <laughs> when it comes to the end of the year, just go out to Bissonneau, cast in a hook. The first fish that comes up going to have exactly the amount that you need. And by the way, Jesus is precise here. My my translation, again, uh, doesn't make that as clear as it should be. But um, verse uh, 27, he says, Go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Actually, it's a, a stater. It's a, it's a Roman coin that is exactly equal to one shekel or two didrochmas. Remember it was said earlier, a drachma was the temple tax, half a shekel. Well, here we need two of them. One for Jesus, one for Peter. That equals a stater. And that's what was in the fish's mouth. Precisely the amount, not just a piece of money, but precisely the amount that they needed to pay the tax. So what's the main point in this little story? Like I say, kind of a funny story. It may seem kind of odd why this is included in the scripture. But again, it's coming right behind Jesus talking about laying his own life down. And it's coming right before chapter eighteen, where there's a lengthy discussion about how to be the greatest In the kingdom. And I think the key to it is in verse 27. After Jesus raises the question about whether or not he and Peter really owe taxes, he says clearly in verse 26 that technically they don't, the sons are free. But then goes on to say in verse twenty seven, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, lest we offend them. And Jesus is saying, We don't owe this tax, but this is a small price to pay to prevent offending others who do. And especially with all of the fame surrounding Jesus. The word gets out and yeah. This rabbi doesn't pay the temple tax. Well, then, we're not going to pay it either. And it could be a cause for them to stumble. And and he's, he's setting an example again here for Peter. First, in verses 22 and 23, first, by talking about his own selfless life, suffering and death, I must go to the cross, I must be turned over, delivered over, over to the Gentiles, uh to the Jews and the Gentiles, suffer and die and be raised on the third day so that you benefit, Peter, so that all believers benefit. My life is spent for the sake of others. And now he's setting another example for Peter to do for uh, for Peter here, for us, and for us to follow. Even in the areas where you have freedom to not do something, if it's going to cause somebody else to stumble, then do it anyway. Or, you turn that around, if in an area you have freedom to do something, but it's going to cause someone else to stumble, that is, cause them to sin, We'll see that when we go into chapter 18. Cause them to sin. Then don't do it. Some great examples of this kind of... uh, or instructions for this kind of restraint on Christian living in Paul's epistles. Let me just give you a, a couple of places here. Romans 14, the whole chapter is a uh relatively lengthy discussion about the law of liberty. Certain things we may eat, uh, or certain things that they were not, some would would, would abstain from, or eat or drink. Paul is saying we, we have liberty there as Christians. Some days they would observe as holy. Paul is saying we have liberty not to. However... He doesn't just say, look, stand on your liberty at all costs. You're at, you're at liberty now to eat and drink anything, so just do it. No, here's, here's what he says, for example, in verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking In love, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So he goes on to conclude. Verse 21. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended. And there's that word again. Or is made weak. So the exhortation in Matthew 17 is an exhortation to, to walk in love, as Paul calls it here. It's, it's an ex- exhortation to, yes, to walk in Christian liberty, but with the restraint that love places on it. Another example. there's, a, again, a lengthy discussion in 1 Corinthians eight through10 uh, about meat offered to idols. Should Christians eat? meat offered to idols, or should Christians abstain from meat offered to idols? Now, I know that's not a big issue in our day, right? <laughs> There's not a lot of uh, meat sold at, at Brookshire's, as uh, far as we know, anyway, that has been offered to an idol before, before they packaged it and put it on the shelf at Brookshire's. But it was an issue in their day. They do the sacrifices and then take the meat out to the marketplace and sell it. Well, Is that participating in idolatry? Should Christians partake of that meat or abstain from it? Well, to put it in a nutshell, Paul is saying, yes, we have the the liberty to eat it. Because an idol, Paul says, is nothing anyway. And, And we know that. We have that knowledge. This is virtually the same argument he makes in Romans 14, where there he's talking about Uh, eating meat or drinking wine or observing certain holy days. He's saying, yes, we're free to do whatever there. But, we must be restrained by love. Same thing here, 1 Corinthians 8 9. He says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And there's that same word again, translated here, stumbling block, offense, scandal. So he says, beware Christians. You, you have liberty in Christ, but beware, lest your liberty cause someone else to stumble. Now let me sum it up with this, because we're out of time. <clears throat> this is on the same subject. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, uh, 23, rather, Paul says this. And I think this is a good way to summarize what Jesus is saying in Matthew 17. In his instruction to Peter, to pay the tax lest we offend. Verse 23, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Remember, that word means build up. So, in other words, all things are lawful for me, but not all things will edify you, uh, me and you if, if I participate in them. What has to be my objective is my own edification, In other words, I want to grow and mature and learn in the Lord, and and your edification. And your edification has to be central for me. It it is central if I'm going to walk in love, right? So Paul says in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. In verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. And there's the word again. 1 Corinthians 10.32 Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. That pretty much covers everybody, doesn't it? Paul saying, let your life be spent for the glory of God and for the well-being of other people. Seek what is good. In the lives of other people. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or church of God. Just as I, it's Paul speaking, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Paul says, do this just as I do. Just as I also please all men and all things. Well, uh, do you please all men and all things? Do you seek? And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. In fact, he does use the word when he speaks of profiting. Do you seek to please all men and all things? Do you seek, like Paul says in the chapter before this, That He's all things to all people. So that, by all means, some might be saved. And that's what He says essentially here too. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So Jesus is telling us, and Paul is telling us, live in a manner committed to the salvation of other people. Salvation and edification of other people. Let your life be spent for the sake of of others, live for their sake, not selfishly, but selflessly, for the glory of God, and for the well-being of others. Would you stand, please? Amen. Lord willing, tonight we'll talk about who's the greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> and uh, we can do like the disciples and dispute that if you want to. or Probably what we'll do is just look at what Jesus said and see what it takes to be great in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana.